It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 406 for August 17th, 2014. This week, identity theft is probably more common and more expensive than you think. Protection is much better than recovery. The number of fraudulent email messages seems to be increasing daily. Adobe's InDesign updates are pushing the application into the future. And in short circuits, employees may take proprietary data with them when they leave. And a happy little hotel robot might do a dance for you. Someday. Did you know that about 4% of all Americans will lose their identity to thieves in any given year? Or that the identity theft racket worldwide steals about $40 billion annually? And if your identity is stolen, even if your bank makes good on all of the fraudulent purchases, you'll still spend probably more than $600 and 40 hours on the phone just to recover your own identity. These are the scary but realistic figures that describe the problem. As with most problems, avoidance is better than recovery. I attended a program by ADP Chief Security Officer Roland Clotier, and I learned the distressing story about the rapid growth of this industry. With a $40 billion annual haul, collectively the thieves are larger than many major corporations, larger even than some countries. As the CSO of ADP, Clotier has functional and operational responsibility for ADP's cyber information protection, risk workforce protection, crisis management, and investigative security operations worldwide. In other words, he knows what he's talking about. ADP is a gigantic company. As a provider of business outsourcing and human capital management solutions, it serves more than 620,000 clients in more than 125 countries. Needless to say, security is a very big deal with ADP because of the kinds of data the company handles. And by the way, this week, be sure you stop by the TechBiter Worldwide website. You'll find a list of identity theft resources with links to the sites. These are recommended resources for obtaining information that you can use to protect yourself from identity theft. And if you've ever wondered what identity theft looks like in real life, there is a real-life story on the TechBiter Worldwide website. It explains how this unfortunate victim lost his identity, how he eventually got it back, how, in this case, the thief was captured, and what he learned from the experience. Clotier explains that identity theft occurs when somebody uses your name, your social security number, or some other personal, financial, or medical information without your permission to commit fraud or other crimes. Clotier calls on people to be human firewalls because no technology can protect us from everything. If you depend on an anti-malware application to shield you from identity theft, you're probably well on the way to becoming a victim. Being a human firewall involves taking a little time to learn something about security. Think of it as a defensive driving class for computers. It also means being aware of your surroundings, much as you would be if you're on an unfamiliar street. And it's important to maintain a certain amount of healthy 
paranoia, and skepticism. This is, after all, for criminals, a big growth area. More and more criminals are exploiting the speed, convenience, and anonymity of the Internet to commit a diverse range of criminal activities. And these activities know no borders, either physical or virtual. The crimes can be divided into three broad areas. Attacks against computer hardware and software using botnets, malware, and network intrusions. Financial crimes, such as online fraud, penetration of online financial services, and phishing and abuse, often involving young people in the form of grooming or sexploitation. You can greatly improve your own safety and security, Clotier says, by consistently taking just four essential actions. First, be aware of your situation. If you're applying for a loan and you're in a bank, expect to be asked for a lot of identification. But if you receive an email or a phone call that claims to be from your bank, and the message or the caller asks you to verify your account number, your username, your password, or your PIN, beware. Never give out personal information over the phone, through the mail, or over the Internet unless you know exactly who you're dealing with, Clotier says. Second, shred it. Any sensitive papers should be shredded before being disposed of. Some people make a really good living just sifting through trash, looking for papers with account numbers and other identification. A $40 shredder is a good investment. Practice cyber hygiene is third. Keep your computer clean by not opening attachments or clicking links and email messages from people you don't know. And even if the message appears to be from somebody you do know, Ask yourself if the message is in character for the sender. On websites, Clotier says, look for HTTPS, or a picture of a lock in the address line, before purchasing from a website or giving out any information to that website. And fourth, review, dispute, and report. When bank and credit card statements arrive, review them promptly and carefully. If there's a charge you don't recognize, check it out immediately. The sooner you notice and report the problem, the less damage a criminal can inflict. And maybe there's a fifth important point on passwords. Important passwords should be long and strong, and it's important to change them regularly. A password for a newspaper site need not be particularly secure, but one for your credit union should be. Some financial institutions are building more security into their websites, but a strong password is always the best first line of defense. So what do you do if your identity is stolen? Well, Clotier says act fast. This is important because you want to stop the thief before too much damage can be done. Clotier says these are the steps you need to take in order. Number one, file a report with local law enforcement. Second, change your passwords for all online accounts. Third, inform your bank of the situation and replace your credit and charge cards. Close any unauthorized or compromised credit cards and inform the companies who were involved in the situation. Fourth, contact one of the three credit bureaus to report the crime or suspicion. Those would be Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion. And fifth, identify what other information might be at risk. You might need to reach out to other agencies if you find things that should be reported there. 
Reporting the incident to police is not done with the expectation that the police will be able to solve the crime. Few police departments have any detectives trained in fighting cybercrime. And even if they did, the criminal is often in some distant jurisdiction or some other country. You will, however, need to reference the police report when dealing with financial institutions. Recently, there have been some stronger warnings about public Wi-Fi hotspots and hotel business centers. The National Cybersecurity and Communications Integration Center recently warned about keylogger applications found in hotel business centers. Many people already know about the dangers of using public Wi-Fi hotspots, but generally they don't consider any dangers in hotel business centers because the computers provided there are hardwired to the hotel's network. But when a keylogger is installed, anything the user types, URLs, usernames, passwords, anything, will be captured. The recent warning said that the attacks were not sophisticated, requiring little technical skill, and they did not involve the exploit of vulnerabilities in browsers or operating systems or other software. The malicious actors were simply able to utilize a low-cost, high-impact strategy to access the physical system, stealing sensitive data from hotels and subsequently their guests' information. The incident noted here affected mainly hotels in the Dallas-Fort Worth areas, but this could be replicated anywhere. In some cases, the suspects who planted the malware used stolen credit cards to register as guests of the hotel. Once in the hotel's business center, the thieves would then use the public computers, log into a Gmail account, and run the malicious keylogging software to load it on the computer. The keylogger malware captured the information other hotel guests entered when they used the computers, and then sent the information via email to the thieves' email accounts. Clever, huh? According to the report, the suspects were able to obtain large amounts of information, including other guests' personally identifiable information, login credentials to bank, retirement, and personal webmail accounts, as well as other sensitive data flowing through the business center's computers. receive a lot of fraudulent email messages. Most of them come to my TechBiter address. Now, there's a good reason for that. The address is on literally hundreds of website pages. But the address isn't one that I use for business. So I know that any message from the Bank of America, which isn't my bank anyway, or Bed Bath & Beyond, I don't shop there, or Sam's Club, not a member, any message sent to that address from any of those folks... It's a fraud. But what about messages from companies I do buy from? Well, I like Petco. I buy cat food there. But they don't know me as Mr. TechBiter. They have my personal email address, and the account is linked to a phone number that is not public. So, when I receive a message telling me that I must retrieve my customer loyalty points at Petco right away or lose them, I'd know better than to click on the link. Not everybody has the luxury of having multiple email addresses, though. So what if you receive a legitimate-looking message from a company that you already do business with? Take a look at the screenshots on the TechBiter Worldwide website. You'll see a message that claims to be from Petco. 
First of all, as I've already mentioned, it is sent to an address that I don't use for business transactions, so I wouldn't have to look any further. But there are other clues there, lots of them. The clues are present and abundant. The sender isn't Petco. Neither are any of the two links that are provided in the message. And the deadline was just one day in the future. Now, businesses just don't do things like that. A limited time offer might be good for a month or maybe a week, but not just a single day or a few hours. Alarm bells going off quickly and loudly. And I've seen messages for new cars, 80% off. Well, that's patently absurd. No rational person should click a link that claims you're going to get 80% off on a new car. But I received one for a summer price reduction. Well, no really absurd claims there. But there's a pointless notice number. And car dealers really don't liquidate their car stock in the summer. This fits into the if-it-sounds-too-good-to-be-true-it-probably-is category. And a message told me, after doing this, you'll have 20-20 vision by Friday. Considering my eyesight, that would be welcome. But now, disregarding for a moment that doing something won't magically improve your vision, even if such a technique existed, it would certainly take more than a week. So, place this one in the same category as the ones that promise you'll lose 30 pounds in six days. Or the ones that say you can reverse diabetes by eating one weird food. Or that some doctor somewhere has been imprisoned because he can cure cancer. I got a message from Costco offering me a shopping spree. Well, Costco really isn't in the business of handing out shopping sprees to people who aren't members. Or, for that matter, to people who are members. This one had another phony number on it, and it really sounded like it was written by somebody with a limited grasp of English. Oh, and of course, it was one that I had to use today. And mixed in with these are the almost daily offers for free oil changes. Just print the coupon, it says, at this link. Well, the link, of course, is poisoned. Not all of these links want to send malware your way, though. Some will simply force you to fill in a form that asks for an outrageous amount of personal information. Then, to cover the fraudster's tracks, it may actually display a coupon you can print, and it'll print just fine. But if you try to use it, you'll find that it won't be accepted. Because it's a fraud. But now the scammers have all your information. That fake coupon scam is also pretty common with fast food restaurants. And, of course, there's the perennial, somebody has ordered a background scan on you, see it here. These are almost always thinly veiled attempts to install malware. A message from Bed Bath & Beyond almost looked like it was addressed to me. At first glance, you might think the fraudster was addressing me by name. There it was, right there on the message capital B-I-L-L dot B-L-I-N-N. -N. Uh, well, that's not really my name, though. My name has two capital B's in it and no dot between the first and the last name. They've just picked out the first part of my email address. I'm really still a bit surprised that most fraudsters haven't yet figured out they could make these ploys look a little more realistic by splitting the first part of the email address on any punctuation and then capitalizing each word. Would that be difficult to do? Well, I don't think so. Any middle school kid who has gone online to learn any programming language would be able to do that within the first week. Or consider this message from Warren Buffett telling me that I can turn $1,000 into $20,000. You know, if Warren Buffett knows how to turn $1,000 into $20,000, I'm pretty sure he'd be using that technique for himself and not spamming the entire world with a tip 
that would have to be used on the same day it was received. The bottom line for almost all of these is that nobody would ever fall for one of these simple scams if they just take a moment to examine the message, consider a skeptical question or two, and then apply common sense. The future of publishing would seem to be electronic. Paper-based books are not in danger of disappearing any time in the foreseeable future because they have numerous advantages for at least some kinds of works, reference books in particular. But electronic books offer some gigantic cost advantages to publishers by eliminating paper, printing, shipping, warehousing, and, pardon the reminder, remainders. Remainders are books that didn't sell and are offered by operations that sell them for as much as 90% less than the published price. The Creative Cloud 2014 update of InDesign places a heavy emphasis on EPUB formatted output. In fact, InDesign has been able to create EPUB files for quite a while now, but the process was successful only for books that didn't depend on any given illustrations being located in any position relative to any particular text. Some say that EPUB files are like web pages. Well, that's correct, but it doesn't go quite far enough. EPUB files are web pages, and the text is intended to reformat on a variety of factors, just like a web page. Users are able to modify the size of the text, the width of the margins, line spacing, and, depending on the reader, several other factors. All of these have an effect on how the text flows, and the publisher can't guarantee what effect the changing text flow will have on graphics that are with the text. For a basic nonfiction book or novel, that's not a problem. It is a problem, though, for electronic versions of poetry, picture books, children's books, and things like that. So this new ability to create a fixed format EPUB makes it possible to create an electronic book that exactly mimics the design of the print version. Some designers will think that this is a wonderful development and they will plan to use it for all their books. That would be a bad choice. Some designers may think this is a terrible development and plan to ignore it entirely. Well, that would also be a bad choice. The right response to the right-wrong-or-it-depends question is, it depends. You need to evaluate the publication at hand, determine whether fixed layout or text reflow is the better option. There is no good or bad here in a general sense, but a decision-making process is needed to evaluate the design of each book and decide which output format is more appropriate. For now, the best solution might still be to use a PDF output if you need a fixed layout file. That's not because of anything Adobe did wrong. It simply reflects the current state of reader technology. To display books in the new format properly, the reader must support the EPUB 3.0 standard, and most readers are still on version 2. You can take a look on the TechBiter Worldwide website. You'll see a sample publication that Adobe provided. It is a multi-page concert souvenir booklet that contains text and images juxtaposed so that they make sense in context. It is important that the words and pictures remain associated in any electronic publication. So for that publication, I selected the fixed layout option. 
But InDesign also provides choices for the reflowable standard EPUB files for PDFs, either intended for interactive use or print, HTML, and several other formats. I'll show you on the TechBiter Worldwide website an example of what happens if you export a highly designed publication in reflowable format. It doesn't look very good. Now, to be fair, InDesign includes several options to improve the layout for a viewer that supports only reflowable files, and those options have been around for a while. But the process involves a lot of manual work, and that's why the fixed format option is so welcome. So you'll see an example of my fixed file output in Calibra. That's a free viewer that has some support for EPUB 3.0. Apple's reader currently has the best 3.0 support, but other readers will eventually catch up, and it's good to know that InDesign is going to be ready when that day arrives, because that day is probably not very far in the future. Currently, though, the better option for fixed layout publication, as I said, might be the interactive PDF format. PDF readers are available for every computer and tablet I know of, and the display will always be correct. Another improvement in the current version of Adobe InDesign makes tables easy to modify. If you have ever created a table in InDesign and then realized that a row or column is in the wrong location, you're probably familiar with the process of adding a new row or column, copying the information from the original location to the new location, and then deleting the unneeded row or column. It's not too bad if just one row or column needs to be moved, but if you're rearranging several rows or columns, it used to be pretty painful. InDesign makes the process a lot easier now. It employs a website like Drag and Drop feature. You'll see that illustrated on the TechBiter Worldwide website. So there's a lot to like about the new InDesign, but some shortcomings remain. For all of its power, InDesign is surprising for some of the features it doesn't have. All the way back in June of 2004, more than a decade ago, I wrote about some surprising features that Adobe InDesign lacked. And a few months after that column ran, I was in Seattle. I was invited to talk with some of the InDesign developers so that I could describe and illustrate those areas that I felt needed improvement. Probably many of the improvements I wanted to see were already on Adobe's roadmap, but it still took about five years for InDesign to gain the ability to define a paragraph style that would allow a headline to span multiple text columns. Many, if not most of the things that we talked about back then, are now included in InDesign, and there are lots of features that never occurred to me back then, such as the ability to create ebooks, and now the ability to create EPUB files with fixed layouts. A new capability to inherit program settings from one version of the program to the next, that's a welcome feature, but long overdue. And InDesign is still incapable of performing one task that is so basic that even word processors have done it for years. That missing feature is an intercolumn rule. Let's say you have text in columns, and you'd like to have a line between the columns. You can do that very easily in Word, not so easily in InDesign. This is such a basic feature that I'm surprised every time a new version is released without it. If you perform a Google search with the terms intercolumn rules and InDesign, you'll see that InDesign users who simply assume that such a basic feature would be present are surprised when they need to do something they expected would be simple, only to find that the only way to create the column rules involves the time-consuming and error-prone process of manually drawing them. 
The bottom line for InDesign, well, five cats. Despite the minor issues that I've noted here, and they are all really minor issues when considered in the overall context of what InDesign can do, there's simply no other game in town. Corel has withdrawn Ventura Publisher, Quark Express has all but disappeared, and lesser publishing tools such as Microsoft Publisher or the open source Scribus just don't have the features that pros need. InDesign is part of the Creative Cloud. I would like to see Adobe add pizza-style pricing to the Creative Cloud so that those who find that they need three or four of the primary applications but not the entire Supreme Pizza with all the toppings could get the ones they need for a slightly lower monthly cost. Adobe is nothing if not adaptable, though, and the company's marketers are probably doing the math on some of those other possibilities. You'll find additional details about InDesign on the Adobe website. There is, of course, a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. In short circuits, ever wonder what people take with them when they leave your employ? Dealing with security when employees quit or were fired used to be easy in the old days. They couldn't very easily carry off a filing cabinet full of information. Well, then came copiers and computers instead of dumb terminals. Now email and internet connections and thumb drives. A former employee can literally walk off with tens of thousands of pages of confidential information. And sometimes the companies make it even easier. Osterman Research surveyed nearly 400 people and found that 89% of them still had access to various accounts that belonged to former employers. These included sales databases, PayPal, email accounts, internal wiki or SharePoint accounts, and social media accounts. Having worked with one company that has very clear-cut and stringent policies for dealing with employees who quit or who are let go, I was shocked by these numbers. In the case I'm familiar with, when an employee leaves the company on good terms or bad, several things happen immediately, within hours. Whether or not the former employee's access control credentials have been returned, those credentials are immediately rescinded to eliminate physical access. Access to all internal computer resources, login credentials for servers or services, for example, are deactivated. Phone and email credentials are deactivated, and on and on and on. The policy that describes the process is detailed and complete. The study found that nearly half of former employees that they spoke with retained access to confidential data, and most of them had logged on to corporate computer resources after leaving the company. This is dangerous, and it could have legal implications for the company. Osterman provides market research, cost data, and benchmarking information to technology-based companies. Owners and managers of smaller companies often think that problems like these are faced only by larger corporations, but that's not the case. The report cites a lack of IT offboarding procedures as the main culprit. You can read the full report online. There's a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Be sure to check out 
beep says the bellhop by John Markoff in the New York Times this week. It describes a bellhop in a hotel that's adjacent to Apple's corporate headquarters. The bellhop makes the hotel distinctive because it's a robot. It's a robot called a butler. It hasn't yet been rolled out, literally. That'll happen on the 20th of the month. But Bottler has been seen operating in test mode. He's about three feet tall, and he delivers items to guests' rooms. Bottler arrives, calls the room's phone to announce its arrival, senses when the door has been opened, and then opens its top-loading bin to deliver whatever the guest requested. You don't have to tip this bellhop, but you can rate its service, give Butler a high rating, and, according to the article, it performs a little happy dance before departing. Markov says Butler looks a bit like R2-D2, or perhaps, he says, like a miniaturized nuclear power plant's cooling tower. It rolls at about four miles an hour, and when it needs to travel to another floor, Butler calls the elevator and then enters the car, taking care, says Markov, to stay out of the way of any human passengers. Butler can even connect itself to a recharging station so that it's always ready to go. There's a link to Markov's full article in the New York Times on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.